to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watch Stargate and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I'll be your host today, Rose, and I'm joined by Sam, who's a super fan, and Malika. Still not a fan. I'm getting closer to fan. Like, if super fan is 100% and fan is 50%, I'm like 48. So you're an almost fan. Almost fan. A proto fan? I could do a fan yeah. fetus. Like a primordial ooze fan. <laughs> Looks kind of like a fan, but isn't a fan yet. <laughs> Getting there. Yes. Today we will be talking about episode seven of season two of SG1 Message in a Bottle. So we start the episode on a moon-like surface where they're doing a spacewalk. Sam says there's an EM source coming from somewhere. They see this orb and then O'Neill tries to make a threat assessment. So at least they're making a threat assessment, right? Is this the first time we see them do something other than, oh, let's touch this shit and go into it and take it back with us. They got very close to it (laughs) while they're doing this threat assessment. I do like that. Tilk says that they're on Tolak, or it sounded like Turlock. <laughs> Which is and the I city was, in California. Yes. I was like, it kind of looks like Turlock too. Maybe city is not really the right way to describe Turlock. Can we talk about the artifact and the fact that it looks like a World Series championship trophy? How do you know what a World Series championship trophy looks like? Because I've been to a Giants game and it looks just like this. It has you went to the World Series game that they won or won? No, no. When they win, they have it for that year or whatever. They have it on in a display case at the um, Giants Stadium in San Francisco. And so I've seen it. And as soon as it pops up on screen, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> and I had to do a Google search. It does. It looks just like it. <laughs> I wouldn't call you a baseball fan. That's why I asked why you would know what it looks like. <laughs> Tam asked if it's a booby trap. Is Teal because like booby? <laughs> it's such a cheap, such a cheap joke, and yet I thought it was amusing. <laughs> you know that that was that was like the hundredth take. <laughs> you know that they were cracking up the entire time. He had such a straight face. Yeah, what is the etymology behind the word booby or the phrase booby <laughs> trap? Okay, so last time you made us Google snake sex, and now we have to Google booby. I'll do it. <laughs> Since my uh, Google search history is not okay. (laughs) It comes from the Spanish word bobo, which translates to stupid, daft, naive, simple, fool, idiot, clown, funny man, somebody who is easily cheated. So the idea is that this would trick somebody. Well, Teal does a great job of saying booby (laughs) with a straight face. So they do decide to take this orb. Daniel ventures an educated guess that it's a time capsule. I mean, sure, why not? They put it in a crate and it lights up before we go to credits. When they get through the gate, they'd say level three precautions. 
again, I think they're learning from their mistakes here, right? They're doing threat assessments. Still think you shouldn't just like take something and pack it up as we will learn from this episode. Maybe they should have like an interim way station on a different planet where they like do a proper threat assessment before they like bring it back to earth. I don't know. And have a, and, quick, a quick way of evacuating it. So they wouldn't, we'll yeah. doing it, you know, turning the little nuts like for five <laughs> minutes, trying to evacuate it. But then we wouldn't have any peril. We wouldn't have a show. If you had actual safeguards that would protect (laughs) Earth, we wouldn't have a show. Fair point. But at least we have some kind of precautions going on. So we go, we we go to the room where they're putting this orb in this little containment unit. Then you have Lieutenant Simmons there. We meet for the first time, a lovely cherubic young man. (laughs) He struck me as like barely out of high school, but maybe that's because I'm an old lady. If I was 20 years younger, I would be like, wowza. Now I'm just like, do you need a Werther's original? <laughs> or no, we're not really 80 years old. For some reason, I can, I remember the premise of this episode. And I never remember how it resolves because it's like so forgettable of an episode because <laughs> they go through a lot of things. And at the end, you're like, oh, that's it. You just talk to the microbes. <laughs> like I remember, I thought Simmons had died. I, re- I don't know why I thought that, but you we never he figure made- out. Well, you never really find out, assuming, because you don't see him die, you just see him be really sick. And I think all the stuff gets like sucked, the blue stuff gets like sucked through the gate. So maybe he's better. Maybe, well, maybe we see him later. I don't remember. We do. So he doesn't oh, die. He's cute. He is cute. Yeah, he's okay. Sam has a particular type. She doesn't give other men a, a shot. <laughs> well, she's married. <laughs> no, no, no. I... Obviously, she's not giving Simmons a shot as Simmons is probably 90 years old now. But no, I'm saying, you know, you can appreciate beauty in all its forms. But Sam's like, nah, he's too. His intelligence does not impress me. Let's just say that. I don't think he's dumb. I think he's like green, seductive and young. Seductive? The way he talks is like, it's like a seductive, like, I'm going to seduce you and... Um, as I push this button that you asked me to push. So it's like this slow drawl of I'm hot for you. Yes. Harder. Whatever you are. I don't think that makes him dumb. I don't see any kind of seductive qualities in him at all. Apparently neither, neither did Carter. You think Carter liked him? No. Oh, yeah, I think she did. You don't think so? No. I think she thought he was real sweet, but he looks what, 10 years? I mean, she's not old in this which she's probably like 30 and he looks like 10 years younger than her. And she's like, nope. She treats him like a little boy who has a crush on her. He doesn't strike me as dumb. He just strikes me as like really immature and young and inexperienced. Give him another 10 years. I don't know if he has another 10 years in him. <laughs> we'll find out, but... <laughs> So they're working on the orb. They find two more elements, which I don't think is possible that you can just find elements that don't exist already. Because they would have, because we have identified every element up until I think it's a hundred and something, right? There's no like missing gaps of elements. But what if they find something that they don't, they can't identify and they know it's a, a pure substance. I mean, I guess you call it an element, right? You slap it up on the periodic. You call it an element, but you, it has to be, it has to. So like the definition of an element is how many protons it has, right? Right. Cause it's like one proton, one electron is hydrogen. So it has to have a different number of protons than a number than another substance in order to be a different element. Otherwise it's just some, maybe they have a new molecule or a new mixing. And I think we have everything up until, yeah, I think we have everything up until 102. So maybe this is 103. Could be, but those, but as you get bigger, the numbers get bigger, the elements tend to be more unstable. So 
I mean, it could be, but you just have like a stable, super heavy element. What about Naquita? Did they ever um, say Naquita was a new element? Yeah. So that's 103. And then this one. So maybe they're up to like 105. Yeah. We know that there's more elements out there. I mean, isn't Wolverine, he has an element in him? He's not a real person. Yes, he is. He's he's Jackman. That's a different verse though. It's a different verse, right? Different Different verse. So let's say we're up to 105 now. And then you have Daniel saying that Lieutenant Simmons has a crush on her. He overhears and his, <laughs> his face gets all red. You don't like that, Sam? No, it's high school. It does not belong in Stargate. It's not a it's not a thing to be joking about in that kind of professional setting. Exactly. If it was Simmons, I would have filed a complaint. Sexual harassment. He's creating a hostile environment. <laughs> he yes, for both Simmons and Carter. Yes. He's a bad Okay, dude. I agree. I think it was just not appropriate. And Sam should have been like Daniel, I'll cut it out. So we go to the briefing room and Daniel's talking about the teeny tiny writing on the orb. And he thinks it's some kind of instruction. Why does he think it's some kind of instruction? It could be <laughs> just a nifty design too. Could be a nifty design. Could be like a list of names. Could be any fucking thing in the universe. You mean those two little squares and then the square that had a little squiggly over that one of the squares? You can't decipher that that is some kind of mathematical problem that we need to work out yeah it could have been like dirty jokes (laughs) seems very straightforward to me (laughs) but they think it opens we don't know why they think it opens but it's like this whole thing of like oh daniel's a brilliant linguist so he can figure this shit out without a frame of reference you cannot decipher a language that you don't know right you need something that tells you what something else is to like just as a starting point and then you can see how it works like that's the whole point of the Rosetta Stone right that allowed a frame of reference to, to interpret languages so that so why he thinks these things nobody really knows but it's the equivalent of a thousand pages of text and Frazier is supervising the positron emission topography first of all I don't know what that is but also why is Frazier supervising it she's a doctor <laughs> Yeah, I had the same question. It sounds <laughs> really fancy, but again, not her field. Not her field. And it's like, like, why aren't there teams of people? You know, now we're in the second season. The Sergei program has established itself. It's not this sort of like, you know, pulled together at the last minute to do a rescue mission thing. You would think you'd have like teams of like linguists. So when, when something like this comes, Daniel can go like, hey, linguists, figure this shit out. And then you have your positron emission topography team that does that shit. There is a group. Later on, we'll see Carter and Daniel giving instructions, briefing a room full of soldiers and people in white coats and all these people. No, the whole thing. It's like you're asking a lot of these like four people <laughs> to do all this stuff. They're the four main actors and they're gorgeous. So of course they get all the jobs. All the jobs, doctor, energy analyst, whatever you want to do. So back in the orb room, they are Sam and Lieutenant Simmons are doing x-rays and Daniel's still making a whole bunch of assumptions about what shit says. Like this might be page one and it might be like an exponent. And you're like, okay, why isn't it page a hundred? I don't know. So this seems to be like a math language and Daniel does not strike me as a math whiz. Like Carter is the better math person, but there should be some kind of expert out there who is both a math and a language (laughs) expert who could come and help them out. But even if there was, how the fuck are they going to know that this dot means exponent and this dot means number? Like if you don't know what it means, it's like you're all just masturbating. (laughs) Just intellectually masturbating. Good thing Simmons is there. 
So Neil says, time to go, Daniel. Can't have it both ways. It's a field unit. We'll ship this off to a whole bunch of other geeks. They can look at it when they get back. And then they start to walk away. And the orb does not like that. And it starts to spike EM spikes, temperature spikes, radiation spikes. Sam says, let's get this shit out of here. The orb opens and glows. And O'Neill says, you can rule out time capsule. Although I don't know why you can rule out time capsule. Still could be a time capsule. They go to the control room. Dan says, dial the gate. They're trying to disconnect the orb and the spikes shoot out. And Teal says it doesn't wish to be removed. And O'Neill says, well, that's just too damn bad. And then they finally do get it removed. They're running, but they try to throw it to the gate and the spikes shoot out all over the place and prevent it from being put through the gate. And one of those spikes sort of pierces O'Neill's shoulder and pins him to the wall. And everyone's kind of looking there, looking at him in shock. So what triggered the orb? Was it just them walking away from it? Seems like it knew that they were trying to get, send it back, but it, it did get triggered before they sent it back, right? Yeah, it did. Maybe it was like already sending out its thingies, its organisms. It wanted to take over. I mean, that was the whole point. So when everything started to spike, even before they said out loud, we need to throw it through the gate, it was already on its course of taking over Earth. But it's been like, what, 12 hours since they brought it through the wormhole? It was like 24 because Hammond gave them 24 hours and O'Neill said it's time to go. So a long time for it to take over. It's like a slow takeover. Then all of a sudden it just ramps up and starts pinning people to walls. I think it was intelligent at this point. I think it knew either they were going to ship it out or send it back. So it probably was the walking away that did it. Don't walk away from me. And then it started going crazy. And then, okay, can we talk about O'Neill pinned to the wall and struggling with some kind of bug? That image just stays with me when I think of this episode. It kind of ruins it for me. He's just like stuck up there. Yes. I would imagine like the gravity and his weight would just make him slip off of this thing and leave like a bloody mess. At some point, they give him a ladder to sit on. Finally, like within an hour later, they finally yeah. give him a ladder. I, I don't, it wouldn't rip out because it looked like it was low enough. So it's underneath his collarbone. Yeah, it would have, and it went all the way through. So he has bones, like big bones that are holding him there. Just like, not a doctor, we're fucked up. We need to go back <laughs> to school so we can <laughs> explain what's going on. But if that's what's holding you up, just a couple bones, that would hurt immensely. Oh, yeah. You can see the pain on his face. Yeah. But they did say, Janet said that there's no blood, like there's not as much trauma to the wound as there should be. So maybe there's something about the orb that was sort of sustaining him. Right. Because that would be a, I mean, even if he didn't pierce a major organ, you would definitely die of blood loss. He just walks away at the end like he's fine. So there must be something to it. So at the end, they sort of extrapolate that it was trying, it didn't do this by accident. It was trying to go into O'Neill to use him as sort of a conduit. Was it O'Neill specifically? Because it kind of almost misses Teal'c at the beginning, like one shoots out and he moves out of the way. So was it just trying to grab anybody? Yeah, I think so. Because O'Neill didn't have much contact with this orb thing before it, you know, pinned him to the wall. But why would you go through Tilk? Maybe it realized that Tilk, I mean, he dodged it, but he wouldn't have been a good conduit because his immune system wouldn't let it travel through him. He never got infected. So he would not be a good conduit. O'Neill was the one in the room that needed to be impaled. Yeah. And he... he <laughs> He was impaled and he did do a good job of acting like someone who had just been impaled. And then he yells for Teal'c to shoot it because what else would you do? And Teal'c shoots it. Sam says, this is a mistake. Shooting energy at a thing that you don't know what it does is not a good idea. And they're like, 
do it. So Teal does it. Energy shoots into O'Neill. He flails. He says, shoot again. He shoots again. And the same thing happens. So Sam says, listen, this energy has to go somewhere. It could be giving it what it wants. Let's stop doing this. And she does look pretty distraught watching O'Neill kind of stuck up on the wall there. Is this a shipper's corner moment? No. Like, no. no. No, I don't think so either. I think this was a this was a concerned colleagues moment. Yeah, it's a pretty horrifying image. O'Neill, you know, dangling on the wall. It is a weird visual. I don't know why they had to make him on the top of the wall like that. Like maybe they could have shot it sideways and just pinned him against the wall regular, like standing height. Or sitting. <laughs> sitting would be sitting. fine too. Well, do, do you think that O'Neill knows that this orb was a living thing? Because, well, here's the thing, Sam saying no. Here's the thing. He doesn't yell, shoot it. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is kill it. So maybe, I mean, I'm just, this is my QAnon theory, but when that, when the spike goes through his shoulder, for some reason, he knows that this is an entity and something living. I don't know. I don't think O'Neill is perceptive enough. I mean, he's a smart guy, but not perceptive enough to understand that threats could be sentient. Maybe he's just assuming that it's alive because it seems to be making decisions in an intelligent manner. So then we go to Hammond's office where he's on the phone with some unknown general saying he doesn't give a damn about what Mayborn wants. They can want that device all they want. Not going to give it up until we deal with the situation. And of course, NID is hoping for it to be a weapon. Daniel says he's sorry. He wanted the, the artifact to be something wonderful. And Hammond says, listen, we do this shit all the time. Sooner or later, one is going to bite us in the ass. Here we go. And then he orders the lockdown, the wildfire lockdown. He called uh, Daniel son. He has a very, so he's from Texas, right? He has a very Southern way of speaking. He calls a lot of people son. Mm-hmm. Also Neil's son, and they're like not more than 10 years apart, right? I just thought that it rose to the occasion. Like everybody's upset and he says something that is kind of soothing and like, we're all in this together. It's going to be okay. He's a very grandfatherly heir to him. So you have the lockdown going to effect. Siler is trying to chop through this middle. And Janet says that O'Neill has a high fever caused by some kind of infection. She's given him antibiotics. Siler says this is the hardest stuff he's ever seen. So leave me alone. And then we get sort of the team in action mode. Sam and Daniel are briefing this random room full of people. She says, don't make assumptions. The guy says, well, it's obviously a weapon. That's an assumption. So she is taking some leadership over this process. That was a bit of a smart ass remark from Carter, though. I mean, she doesn't really answer his question or the implied question in his remark. So is she, it sounds like she's taking over O'Neill's duties. Like if duty, if if O'Neill weren't incapacitated, he would be leading this, this meeting here. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe it's because she's the scientific mastermind of the base that Hammond's like, you're in charge of this team or you're in charge of this project. I mean, I kind of like when you get, because you really, you know, Sam's military, she obviously went through military training, has been part of military culture for years. You don't get to see that too much other than with her and O'Neill on SG-1. And I feel like her and O'Neill have a just different dynamic. It's not, you know, like we saw it a little bit in the first episode when she was introduced to O'Neill and to the, that group of men sitting around the table and she was getting all that kind of shit from Kowalski and Ferretti. Um, and you see how she like sort of how she handles herself in the, that kind of setting. And so I feel like every now and then we get to see that part of her, this like, I know how to deal with military assholes part of her. And this was an example. It's kind of cool. 
So then Janet comes into the briefing room and she says that O'Neill has an infection, that the antibiotics have slowed the process. And then this is when she says, hey, take a look at this and shows her the, the images of the, I guess, the organism. It says they're mobile like a bacteria, small like a virus and slightly radioactive. O'Neill always seems to get this shit. <laughs> These like robotic microscopic organisms. <laughs> It's always like the patient, patient zero. So they don't know if this is alive or not. Because they were, did they ever refer to it as a virus? Bacteria. She is the word. It's like bacteria and like a virus. But I, I don't think it's, they don't, I don't know if it's organic or like, like robotic, but it seems like it's an, just an organic alien type of organism. And then they're forming like chains, which are getting longer. And she, she equates it to necrotizing fasciitis, which mm-hmm. is gross. And a bacteria. Yes. Flesh-eating bacteria. Remember when there was that big flesh-eating bacteria like craze in the 90s where it was like all over the news? It couldn't have been a new thing. I'm sure it's like. Yeah, you can get necrotizing fasciitis from a uh, paper cut. That's what my mom says. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. It's like one in 80 billion chance. But you could. <laughs> I remember this period in the 90s when I was in high school where like there were news stories about flushing bacteria all the fucking time. And it like led one to think that this was a major problem on Earth. <laughs> I don't think it ever was. I was scared of quicksand. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but necrotizing fasciitis, I remember those stories. It was it was always in lakes. People would get it in lakes or they would get it from spider bites. Like I remember reading some story about, I think it was a lady who lost her nose because a brown recluse bit her on the nose and gave her necrotizing fleshiitis. But I'm still more afraid of quicksand. Apparently quicksand isn't even that dangerous. You Like the worst thing you can do is like struggle a lot. And if you don't, if you just like remain calm, you can get out of it really easily. It almost killed Princess Buttercup. <laughs> Come on now. It is. Was that the... Is that the never, what's the never ending story? That's is that, that a quicksand? It, it stole, it uh, killed. Horse, right? A horse. In, uh, I remember a- being fucking traumatized by that movie when I was like six years old. I went to a sleepover and they made us watch it and I was horrified. Horrified. I can still remember it right now. There was quicksand and never ending story that killed a horse? No, I think it was a river. The oh, horse kept sinking and sinking. Yeah, sinking, but it was sand. I'm pretty sure it was like watery sand, but yeah. I, my biggest crush was on a tray. I used to make my mom rent that movie over and over and over again from the video store <laughs> because it never ending story. so hot. I feel like this is an example of or like you're a horror fan and you see this like traumatic movie and you're like, love it. I want to see it every day in my life. And I'm like, never, ever again. So not so it's kind of like necrotizing fasciitis, this little organism deal, but it's worse because it eats through like anything, including clothes and concrete and all that. And so then Sam gets the idea to try a UV analysis and then they see that blue stuff, the lighted up organisms going along the orb spikes into O'Neill through him into the wall and lighting up the wall. So everyone's like, uh oh, bigger problem than we thought. And there's a there's a strand of it going up to his brain too. Yeah. That's Is true. that why he's able they're able to communicate through him later on? Because they're accessing his brain must be because they like speak through him i mean i don't know about o'neill but when we see simmons later it looks like it's traveling through veins then we see simmons with his hands all lit up so he's been infected and i guess can't take antibiotics because he's allergic to penicillin or something or tetra something tetracycline so can it also eat dirt or like the earth's mantle she says it could eat through anything so if we don't control it then it could eat the entire earth is that what she thinks is going to happen 
I think it would just consume everything. I mean, it's unclear what they mean by consume because it needs oxygen to live. If it's like a fire and it just kind of burns through things, if it goes to people and kills them, it doesn't need people to live. Like it was, it was happy to go to that planet where there was no people. So I'm not sure by consuming what they mean. Because if it consumes earth, then it's going to destroy the atmosphere, thus no oxygen. So I, I don't understand how this thing could have lived if, if it's so destructive. I don't think that even though we're using the word consume, it's not actually destroying anything because I mean, it's going into like absorbing into every O'Neill and the wall and the computers, but it's, it's not like there's now a hole in the wall. So it's not destroying everything. It was unclear when she said it was like, it was like fleshing bacteria. So presumably it was like changing the thing it was in to something else, right? It was like eating through it or something. I mean, without the UV, they wouldn't have known it. other than O'Neill getting sicker and then Lieutenant Simmons gets sick. And so, so it was affecting his systems in some way. Nobody else seems to get sick that we know of. Other And also the computers go haywire, but it doesn't seem to be damaging like the structural integrity of the base or anything. I mean, other than to just live there, I don't know what its goal was. To survive, I guess, but how is it yeah. surviving? I don't, I don't understand the chemical process that's going on. Like, is it turning the concrete into some kind of waste product that is also provides structure? Is that what's happening? It's poop. yeah, that was very. <laughs> is, is the poop keeping up the? So now concrete poop. Yeah, the concrete. <laughs> like a worm. Because of, yeah, like a worm, well, like, like an earthworm, which is actually helps it. Yeah. And improves it. Mm-hmm. I think, Sam, you have discovered a plot hole. And they also don't really explain the mechanism by which people get sick, right? So first of all, how did Lieutenant Simmons get infected? And like, he didn't get punctured by this thing. He was working in the room with it, but Sam and Daniel were working much more closely with it. Maybe he did something inappropriate with it. <laughs> like an STD transmission. Yes. From the orb. And then why is he worse off than O'Neill, who has the shit like plunged through his chest? Well, they need O'Neill to communicate with. So they're probably but why, they, why can't they communicate through Simmons? He's too young and naive. He's not either like, this guy's useless. Huh? Yes. So, but Janet does beg Hammond to let her bring in some more antibiotics. And he's like, no means no. Nothing in, nothing out. Too bad. If he dies, he dies. And she looks pretty mad about that. And Sam, Sam says, we are going to make our stand. It won't take us without a fight. Well, because Hammond's like, let's evacuate with everybody infected. Why don't we put some infected people in our alpha site? Awesome idea, Hammond. That was well thought through. Is it dark now just so they can keep tabs on it, I guess? Because now Siler's working in the dark and Teal'c is staying with O'Neill. You know, I think this is a nice little scene between Teal'c and O'Neill. You get some good friendship dynamic here. Teal'c refuses to, to leave him. His symbiote protects him. And he says, undomesticated equines could not remove me. That was a great scene. And it's yeah. even better in that he he meant that as a joke. And then they say, you're a good man, my friend. Yes, you do. That was kind of sweet. I think I appreciate more the relationship between Tilk and O'Neill than Daniel and O'Neill. I don't know why. I just do. Because we like Tilk. <laughs> yes. I like Daniel. <laughs> I don't have that money issues with you. Daniel. I, I appreciate Daniel's character, but I don't like Daniel. Ever or just in the beginning? Kind of ever. I, I don't want to have a beer with him. I don't want to, you know, have a conversation with Daniel, but I do appreciate the work that the writers did with his character. If I was really sick with a fever and had an organism that's going to use me as their zombie medium, would you guys come over and wipe my brow? I thought that was so sweet. Of course we would. <laughs> yeah. And we'd say undomesticated undomesticated equines couldn't remove us. 
And I would be like, is that a joke? Is that a joke? <laughs> You're like, I'm fucking dying here. Stop making jokes. <laughs> Tyler finally manages to cut through one of the spikes and it just shoots right through. So all that work for nothing. And he looks a bit defeated. Tyler, good for was his one job. <laughs> I do this thing and it didn't even work. He was almost all the way through. So he, he did his job, even though it <laughs> O'Neal worse. And made him cry. Daniel's <laughs> whole job this episode is to look just horribly in pain. Does it really well. So then we go to Daniel's office where Samuel, Sam and Daniel are pouring over this text. And it is just abundantly clear they have no fucking idea what they're doing. Maybe it means this. Maybe it means it. Maybe the next page says what it means. I don't know. That's it. <laughs> so we go to the infirmary and Lieutenant Simmons is just not doing very well. And Janet is comforting, comforting him. She's got a really nice bedside manner. And he asks for Captain Carter. Didn't ask for his parents or anything. Just asked for Captain Carter. Well, his parents can't come in, remember? <laughs> Wildfire. Oh, but you're dying. I don't know. What do you think he wanted to say to Carter? I love you. Yeah, probably. Would you be my sugar mama. <laughs> Back in the lab office wherever sam is like i was right that staff blouse gave the organisms the energy it needed why did i let them do that i don't know that she really had the choice she, <laughs> she kept saying don't do this and they kept saying don't and we're gonna do it what so. was she gonna do throw herself on teal <laughs> <laughs> and this is the random dude so this is the military guy you don't like malika or you didn't think was attractive i he's fine i'm just not gonna intellectually masturbate to him. that's just okay that's my personal choice Sam figures out that the organisms need oxygen to do whatever it is they're doing. And then the computers start going crazy and she runs down the hallway, runs into the elevator, elevator stops. Seems like that was predictable. If the organism is now starting to affect symptom systems along the base, I don't know why you'd get into an elevator. Stairs. <laughs> stairs. Yeah. There are stairs because they use them every now and then. That totally pissed me off. She literally runs from, knows that they're messing up the computers, sees it herself, runs down the hall, sees that it has corroded or done something to the steam pipe, and then runs into an elevator? Come on now. Yes. Like, of course the elevator is going to stop. Of course. And then what, what the fuck was that goo? Yeah. I know. What was that? That's the poop. <laughs> That's the, the waste products. It's going to harden and get it, hold up Mount Cheyenne or whatever the place is called. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's not turning the wall into goo, though. Just the instrument panel. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daniel luckily is right there outside the elevator. With an axe. <laughs> For no reason. I mean, why isn't he in his office working? He's right there. And so when she says, I'm trapped, he pries open the doors and lets her out. And then we get back to the control room, the gate room. And you see Teal waving his fire torch on the wall and sam's like what the fuck are you doing you're making this worse that was my question what was he doing were these bars part of the orb i think he was doing it against the wall and why because when he did it because hammond didn't hammond said it it seemed to slow the progress or something and then sam's like listen it's an if he's on oxygen we got to like turn down the oxygen that it feeds on and then the auto destruct turns on by itself and hammond says that's a it does that automatically in case of containment failure and sam's like listen you're going to spread the shit all over the planet not good and they can't override it because it's they've already the computer's already been compromised and then we have another scene between o'neill and teal where o'neill's like man i fucked up and teal's like listen we got we all agreed to it we got to take risks he's kind of right no pain no gain it's <laughs> 
cliche that O'Neill would appreciate. And then we go to the infirmary and we see um, Sam getting a shot. And she mentions that the, the strategy of turning down the oxygen to 8%. Can you survive in that? No, 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 by 8%. She said by, by 8%. 8%. Okay. And it slowed the organism's growth by 90%. So, so you're turning, which seems like a lot. So you're turning down the oxygen, obviously not so much that they can't survive, but shouldn't there be some symptoms of hypoxia? I think it would have to be lower, but probably 8% isn't that much. Maybe it makes you a little sluggish. So you, you get epoxy, epoxia? That's, yeah. Hypoxia? Well, you get that on Mount Everest and oxygen comprises 23% of the air on Mount Everest. Well, how much does it comprise of the air like regular? Oh, it's 21%. Wait, that can't be right. That can't be right. So it'd be less than Mount Everest? Wow, 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. Wow. But it's 20.9%. 20.9 at sea level? At sea level. Concentration of oxygen in sea level air is 20.9%. So how much is it on Everest? Is about half of its sea level value. So like 10%. So the, the, the summit, it's a third of its sea level value. But it's still 23%. Just, it's just the average. I think it's a combination of percent and pressure. I think Rose is right. The pressure is lower. Therefore, there's less air to breathe. Yeah. That sounds good. So 8% would, yeah, they're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can all talk and they're all fine. But yeah, if it's 8%, they're dead. That's pretty low. But they don't seem to be dead. When Carter was like, don't do this, would the auto-destruct would allow this organism to infect the entire earth yes it's true because it happens in return of the living dead (laughs) i mean i think it's a reason if that's the principle you're working off of that it feeds on energy and it doesn't it's not killable i guess in a traditional way without killing yourself although what happens like let's say simmons died what happens to the organisms in him they just go into the bed and go into the next thing (laughs) they become pillow organisms So speaking of Simmons, so um, while Sam is in the infirmary, Janet says, hey, why don't you go stop by and say hi? She goes to visit him. He's not doing so well. And he tries to confess his love to her, I guess, and can't because he's too sick. He coughs. <laughs> he has some red gunk all over his face, too. Where's he's dying of alien organisms. Which causes red gunk on your face? Apparently it causes oozing out of, com- out of elevator panels. Yeah. It gives you, it's like alien chicken pox. No, it looked like he rubbed strawberry jam all over his face. That's what it looked like. It's probably what happened. Or they like sprayed him with like a spray adhesive and threw little um, sprinkles, like donut, the tiny, tiny little one, donut sprinkles at his face. So then we go to Daniel's office where Daniel looks like he's been burning the midnight oil. The computers are wigging out and the symbol appears on the screen, kind of flashing periodically. And Daniel says it's trying to communicate. It seems, I I know that we talked about this. I know they have to resolve this story and there has to be some kind of breakthrough. How the fuck would you make that leap? Or let's say you make that leap, fine. They're trying to, because you see the symbol, you know that that symbol wasn't already in the computer. So whatever is infecting the computer is flashing the symbol. Let's say they're trying to communicate. How you then go from that to Sam and Sam's like, let's do exactly the opposite of what I've been saying so far. Let's let the oxygen, let's increase the oxygen. Let's shoot O'Neill so that he can talk through it and 
that's it to go from symbol on screen to like, let's give it everything we want. It wants and might kill our friend O'Neill seems like a lot of assumptions from somebody who said, don't make any assumptions. Yeah. I'm surprised (laughs) they let her do that, that they went with Carter's new plan, which is the one 180 exact 180 of what she's been saying, (laughs) which is what Hammond says. He's like, what the fuck you've been telling me to do the opposite. What do you want me to do? But, but that's what happens in science. Sometimes you discover something and it completely is the opposite of what you assumed. So you have to do a 180. I mean, that's kind of what science is about, right? But usually based on actual evidence, not based on a random chain of assumptions that really are not supported by anything. I don't know. Sometimes when I hear Jeff talk about his science stuff, some of it sounds very theoretical. Like what, where did you get that from? And, and a lot of it I think is just based on what they think will happen. And then they do experiments to, to get evidence for that assumption. But if their experiment fails and the earth is destroyed, would they do it? (laughs) Jeff is in trouble. Okay, so here's the thing. Jeff does not see a Volvo symbol pop up on a computer and be like, I have a theory. <laughs> no. Did you say Volvo? Volvo, no. the car. Volvo. Volvo. Oh, Volvo. Volvo. I said Volvo. Does not look like a Volvo. <laughs> no. A symbol for Volvo. It could. <laughs> it could like this, maybe, or something like that. Well, this was, it wasn't like a circle. And then there was kind of a, yeah, it looked like a hammer and sickle to me. Kind of the Russians, the Russians, (laughs) (laughs) it's the Russians trying to communicate. (laughs) Okay. Where are we? Oh yeah. Hammond's like, what the fuck you people are driving me crazy. And okay. I get that you are in a desperate situation. You have your self-destruct. That's going to go off in two hours. It is time to think outside the box. Fine. But if you fuck it up, it's not, it's really bad. And she seems really sure that the way to go is the exact opposite of the way that they had been going. So didn't quite seem like that gap in reasoning was really put together properly. So they go with the Hammond's like, okay, I'm trusting you. If you're wrong, you're going to die and we're all going to die and O'Neill's going to die, but okay, let's do it anyway. All right. So they're going to go for this plan. They now have raised the oxygen 30% above normal. Is that what they do in like casinos? Is that the level that it's at? Cause they, isn't that the thing where they like pump casinos to make you all like jazzed up to lose all your money? That's why there's no windows. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was just in Vegas. It's a weird place. Um, and they also have like oxygen bars in different places where you can like suck on an oxygen tube and you get all like, it's like doing a line of Coke or something. <laughs> you know, I, should try that. I need to put that on my to-do list. <laughs> Do a line of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you can get some. Oh, I'm okay. One of your clients. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> So she does say, we're going to try something. It might kill you. And he grips her hand. Shipper's corner. Are we at a shipper's corner moment? I think so. She just said, what I, my plan (laughs) is to kill you. (laughs) The one thing that is keeping you alive, which is reduced oxygen and these meds, I'm going to take them away and hey, you might die. I don't know about Shipper's Corner on that one. That seems like it kind of a domestic violence relationship. <laughs> it seems like with him squeezing her hand, he's saying, I trust you. I trust you that you know that you're doing the right thing. Or maybe it's like an involuntary reflex because he has a orbs spike through his shoulder and he's dying. I don't think that would be consent in the court of law. I mean, I don't think it's a sexual thing or a love thing. I think it's a him saying, I trust you. I think he's saying, this is do it. I, I trust that you are making the right call. 
So yeah, not so much shippers corner, I guess, more like a camaraderie corner. Or like a, a brick, one little brick in their wonderful relationship. Yes. Well, because there was a point where he didn't trust her in the beginning or was not sure about her. When was that? Like the first like episode one, yeah. <laughs> Before he saw her. Yes, you're yes. right. Those five seconds when he heard the name <laughs> Carter and then he saw what she actually looked like. No, I think I think you see the arc. Like, I think he he liked her. After that briefing room conversation, which we talked a lot about in episode one, he's like, okay, you're good. You're solid. You, you proved yourself. Let's see how this goes. And then there was like a building of trust, building of like a relationship. But now we get to the point where he's saying, I really trust you to like, with my life. And I'm not sure we had hit that point before. But she well, does, in fact, kill him. She kills him, but then saves him. I mean, she's right, right? This ridiculous assumption that she makes turns out to be right. Teal shoots him again and again and again. He dies for momentarily. And then the orb starts speaking through him and he's not dead. Carter and Tilk have made a zombie medium. <laughs> so this is zombie O'Neill for sure. This is zombie O'Neill. And he's a medium because they're doing like a little seance chatting with him about what he wants to do. And what's up with this campers thing? That's what O'Neill says. Like, remember when he um, walked in on uh, Carter and Daniel after an all-nighter? He said, okay, campers, let's go. And then in a previous episode, he said, hello, campers. It's kind of like it's one of his catchphrases. So that's why they were able to recognize that it's still O'Neill, even though it's this creepy orb thing talking. Yeah, I thought it was like they were using his language. I thought um, RDA's portrayal of Orb RD, or Orb or Neil was pretty good. It was like creepy and yet friendly. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good too because it, it was like his voice, but he didn't make it sound sufficiently not like him that you recognized it wasn't him. Mm-hmm. That it was something else speaking through him. So he says, so they say, is O'Neill there? Yes, he's here. So are we. Hammond talks to them. He tells a story about how their planet was destroyed or was dying so they went into the orb i mean is this them is this their final form or is this their like prototype that then turns into their final form that was my question too like how did they make this orb like <laughs> no tiny, hands tiny little <laughs> hands yes i think it must be like a seed the seed of the civilization right like i don't know if they're like bipedal people but they're like form chain bigger maybe maybe it's like um odo's planet where it's like the like they're shapeshifters or something like t- together they make this shape that can actually have like thumbs, opposable <laughs> thumbs that can make things. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And they like, r- I mean, they're writing tiny, tiny things on it. So this is like, obviously you need tools and things. I well, think they're shape sifters. I think they turn into like ooze and that's okay. them and they, they can shape shift. So, so each individual organism is tiny. So it makes sense that they would write something in tiny handwriting, I guess. But they don't have the hands. <laughs> No, I think it's, I think they form like, so they're not humanoids, right? So I don't think we can think of them as like discrete people the way that humans are. I think they're kind of like a, like a communal life form that could make itself into different things. But they have, they have a language. They have, they have a written language though. Yeah. So they would (laughs) write. They would, would, if they have a written language, they obviously need to communicate in writing at some point. Right. (laughs) Hmm. I mean, I think the most we can understand is that this is not their final state. Like this is their, I don't know, maybe their essence or some kind of, and maybe like they need, once they get to their new world, they could build their society again. And we don't know what it would look like. So it is written on the orb that eventually somebody would find them and they would go forth and multiply as it is written. And they cannot go back to their world. And Ham's like, well, you can't stay here. And they're like, 
well, if you, if the self-destruct goes off all the better, too bad. And then Daniel puts forth this proposal that they go to this other planet. It's a good thing he remembered that planet right off the bat. Cause they have like four minutes left. Right. And why, so why would they trust him? Or is the idea that they wouldn't release the self-destruct until it was done? I think they're reading O'Neill's mind and O'Neill trusts Daniel. Therefore they're going to go with you know, the plan. Okay. So he, they can tell from O'Neill that they're not evil. They don't mean harm. Yeah. And that Daniel means what he says. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, it, so the idea, the plan is to have them consume this primordial world. I mean, that's just live on it. I mean, I don't think, I don't think consume by means they consume it, like remove it of all its stuff and then like move on. I think like the way humans consume earth, we still live on it in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, We're maybe that's not a great example because <laughs> we are kind of destroying the planet. Yeah. But I think they just like, it has the things that they need to survive and they can just survive there <clears throat> for millennia. So, you know, this whole go forth and multiply thing is actually kind of um, like a biblical idea because God said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, which is exactly what they want to do. Right. And rule over the fish in the sea and the birds on in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground, be fruitful and multiply. Is this a biblical allegory? Yeah. Well, so one of my questions, once we get to the end of the episode is like, what is the moral of this story? Like, it's a little bit hard to figure out. Like, yeah, is, so they do use, I think the, the big, biblical language is quite intentional. Yeah. So just to finish off the episode, they agreed to this plan. They have like two fucking minutes left and O'Neill walks so slowly. <laughs> He's like, go to the orb, let it retract, take very slow steps up. The, and then you can see Evan and Sam in the control room are like, fucking hurry up, we have two minutes. <laughs> and he like gently places it in. And the dialing takes like two minutes and then he like gently places it into the center and like waits for it. And then it shuts off and he stands there. And then they're like furiously typing in the code. Like they could have sped that up a little bit and they could have been like, thank you very much. Can you move faster? <laughs> you know, yeah. could have brought him like a wheelchair, <laughs> wheeled him up really fast or a shopping cart. Just put him in a shopping cart and just kind of finish it. Like, I don't mean to him. rush you, but we are a bit of a time pressure. You mean you didn't feel all of the tension as it counted down to one second and then it's like aborted. <laughs> I hate those one second. I'm like, I get you're trying to peril the jeopardy. I get it. One second is just too much for me. Do 10 seconds. It's still jeopardy. The earth is saved. They're saved. O'Neill collapses straight backwards. <laughs> yeah, ouch. And it's fine. His shoulders like all healed up. Is there, do you think there'll be a scar even? I don't think so. I mean, he's, his, they, they pulled him up by his, like, he doesn't seem to be injured at all. But even before they pulled him up, there was a slight shipper's corner because Carter had her hand on his knee. Everybody else was holding him too, but hers Mm -hmm. was. And he says, wild horses, captain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought that, because he says that to her, not to the team. But she wasn't there during that conversation with Teal. No, so, so she's, she's like, like, what, what the, the fuck, fuck are you wild horses? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> He's still delusional. Oh, no. <laughs> still infected. But he can say whatever he wants to Carter <laughs> from now on because she literally killed him. But saved him also. <laughs> it saved, yes, save the, O'Neill saved the entire planet 
but she did kill him. <laughs> so is it now zombie O'Neill from now on then? Yeah, it's like a Jacob's Ladder scenario. This, the rest of the entire Stargate, Stargate Atlantis, all the movies that came after. O'Neill's been dead the whole time. And this is a fever dream. <laughs> okay. This is reanimated corpse. Sounds right. Can we talk about the title? So mm-hmm. the message in a bottle, that that never seems to fit the episode. The bottle obviously is the orb and the message from the orb is what? Well, that's why I think this is some kind of allegory. There's some kind of moral here about mm-hmm. a warning for human. And also there's that point where Daniel's like, is it a warning? What's the point of writing a warning? If, if, it, if it's too late by the time you get it, you're already dead. And so I'm like, is this really, this whole story, the point of it is to be a warning for humanity of what will happen to us if we don't care for our world? Or is it a warning of, you know, if we don't approach things more carefully, what will happen to humanity? So this is actually a climate change episode? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, like, I feel like, I feel like they're talking to us in some way and it, the message is a little bit obscure. Yeah. yeah. It's like the writers didn't really know what they were saying. <laughs> they just thought this orb looked cool. Well, it kind of feels to me like the message was if we work together and don't see each other as enemies, we can all survive, except for O'Neill. But <laughs> that's how I that's how I kind of because at first they didn't think it was a weapon. They thought it was good. Remember, Daniel says, I tried to bring something. I thought it was something wonderful. Like they always have good intentions, but then it becomes like anything goes a little awry and now it's a weapon. It's trying to kill us. We need to kill it. There was also, remember when Hammond wanted to send it, uh, evacuate personnel through the Stargate and Carter was like, no, we have an obligation to protect other planets also. So yeah. it was, it's kind of like, we need to work together to have a good outcome. And if we don't, we will all self-destruct, auto self-destruct. I like that. I like that take. That's my closing argument. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, a, it seems like a little bit like cheesy to be like, the moral is to work together and take care of your planet. But and I think, you know, kind of is. What kind of accent was that? <laughs> like the school marm voice. <laughs> All right. So let's rate this episode. Sam, why don't you start? I give it a 4.5. The chevrons. The message, like I said, is a little muddled. Uh, but I do appreciate the Teal'c and O'Neill uh, conversation. I like that Carter sort of took charge of this whole situation even though at one point she she switched plans and did the opposite of what she was saying she we should do uh yeah so 4.5 she is a true scientist right as yeah. you said so I mean, a true scientist looks at the information and is not afraid to change their mind correct yeah malika i actually agree perfectly with sam I give it a four point, I encode a 4.5 for this episode also. Um, I do think that Carter needs to be brought up on charges for murder. And it is because she's a scientist. Um, Scientists do like to kill things like monkeys (laughs) and O'Neill. 
I would defend clearly enough necessity defense for murder. Yes. Yes. I would, I would defend her, but she is a murderer. Is there a necessity defense for murder? Maybe you can use it for self-defense. No, it's a, it's an affirmative defense, right? Necessity. It's affirmative defense to prevent a greater harm. Yeah. But I don't think you can like, let's say you wanted to save 10 people by shooting one person. I don't think you could do that unless that one person is trying to kill you. Because I guess the harm of killing, like, let's say your defense, because in this case, O'Neill wasn't trying to kill them, but killing him was had the potential to save the whole planet. So it's a necessity defense in that it's trying to prevent greater harm. But I don't think you can, that just sort of, then it seems like you would then be able to kill people randomly if it was going to save more people. So then why don't we use a defense of others argument? O'Neill wasn't trying to kill them, but the entity that was inside of O'Neill was trying to kill them. I mean, they... The entity that was inside of O'Neill wanted the auto-destruct, wanted to destroy the base and the, so that it could multiply and, and probably kill off other humans. So I think you might be able to use defense of others. But isn't, never mind. I think defense of others is limited to the person causing the harm. Yeah, kill O'Neill. It's part of this conversation. I, what makes me think of is like the way military actions happen. Like in Afghanistan, if you get information, let's say that a suicide bomber is in a car, that car happens to be filled with 10 kids, you bomb that car. There's a lot of questions about whether that's remotely moral. The argument is, well, that suicide bomber was going to kill 100 people. And I'd rather kill 10 people, even if they're innocent, than let that happen. Is that a necessity defense? I don't think in, a, in an American court of law it is. It may be on the battlefield. I think it's still murder. I think so too. Yeah. Because you don't want people making those kind of calls. Like vigilante justice, right? Yeah. In this case, there's no cops to call. (laughs) There's no, my my colleague has been taken over by orb organisms. (laughs) Come deal with it. I'll just I'll just kill him myself. (laughs) All right. Okay. What's your what's your um, Chevron rating? I'm gonna give it a five. You know, I I did recognize more plot holes this time than I remember noticing, but it's like overall, I kind of enjoy watching it. It's kind of interesting. I don't know. I like the Teal uh, O'Neill moments. I like Samuel, Sam and Daniel working together to solve problems, even though they don't do a great job of it. Um, There are a couple of plot holes, but yeah. And if this episode was made today, is there anything that might be different about it? No, just the one second thing might be different. I, do they still do that? The like just in the nick of time. I hate that shit. But I think they do it more ironically now. I don't see. I mean, other than the plot holes, I don't see that much problematic material. I think it it it's pretty pretty stand up. I don't think it's needs to be changed that much. You might get the the society more fleshed out like who are these organisms what are they that might be a little more fleshed out give them hands (laughs) i don't know (laughs) explain how microorganisms can create an orb with a thousand pages of text on it yeah (laughs) well also they were on this like moon-like surface that apparently had an atmosphere a hundred thousand years ago but there's no like structures of civilization like buildings would still stay there Mm -hmm. right and they didn't seem to be any well, but maybe they're organic based. So if they destroy the atmosphere, everything that they created, if it's if it's organic, 
would be destroyed also after a hundred thousand years of no atmosphere. Yeah, I like that theory because it also it joins um, Deep Space Nine universe to the Stargate universe. I like that. <laughs> be like Odo's people. Yeah, Odo's people. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're Odo's people. Maybe these are the shapes of the founders. <laughs> yeah, and they go on to found the Dominion. Mm-hmm. Two hundred years when we get to Star Trek times, <laughs> totally works. Don't worry, Malika. You'll see some episodes and you'll know what we're talking about. I. I thought I should break out the Dungeons and Dragons game. (laughs) We got really down the rabbit hole right there. (laughs) So thank you for joining us. Please join us again next week when we will be discussing episode eight of season two, Family. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Teal is like booby. like us oh and follow us on instagram at probing the wormhole or twitter at probing the wormhole or facebook at probing the wormhole you can also get in touch with us at our website probing the wormhole.com